This is the Chronically Fit Show. On this podcast, we speak to people achieving incredible sporting goals despite a chronic health condition. My name's David, and I have autoimmune hepatitis. I'm joined by health and fitness experts to better understand how physical activity can help manage chronic conditions like mine. Through the conversations I'm having with our guests, I'm better understanding how to approach my own health condition. So I hope you enjoy not just this show, but journey. This first ever episode of the Chronically Fit show sees us talk to Levisa. Levisa was diagnosed with autoimmune hepatitis, the same condition that I have, but she was diagnosed aged just 19. At that stage, she was told that she couldn't really expect a great quality of life beyond the age of 30. Despite that, at 36, she runs regularly and she attributes that love of running as one of the reasons that she's no longer on the UNOS list and seeing herself drop down the number of drugs that she's having to take. Later on in the show, I'm also joined by Natalie Turner and Marla Morkin, a fitness and health expert, to try and cast some expert opinion on the show and also, as the weeks go by, to hopefully answer your questions. We'll dive straight into the interview with Lavisa and then we'll be back with that conversation. So I'm chatting to Lavisa. Uh, very quickly, before we get into anything, um, I think it'd be worth kind of explaining who you are, what you do for a living. Um, so just, just so people kind of have an introduction to you, to you. You're sitting in a classroom, which is kind of a giveaway. Yes, um, yes, I am. <laughs> uh my name is Lavisa, and I am a high school uh, science teacher specialized in biology, and I'm 36 years old, and I suffer from autoimmune hepatitis. The disease, well, I shouldn't, I don't, this is a funny thing, right? Actually, this, I don't, I keep kind of tripping myself up going, should I call it disease? Should I call it illness? Should I call it condition? I, I think I personally prefer the word condition. yeah. Yeah, because that it, it sounds less contagious. Disease kind of sounds like it's uh, contagious. That's why I like using the word condition. Is that something that's kind of become more apparent in the last nine months in your psyche, given everything else that's going on in the world? Or Yes, yes, definitely. Right. That saying that it's a condition, it's easier to understand that it's something that doesn't go away and something that affects you every day. Disease yeah. tends to be, it's more negative than the word condition. So that's why I prefer using the word condition. So interestingly enough, um, yours, I think, was this first profile that I found on Instagram when I started hunting around, when I was told that I had autoimmune hepatitis. Mm -hmm. So it's lovely that you've agreed to speak uh, on this show. Um, when were you diagnosed? I was diagnosed in 2003, yeah, 2003 in the summer after graduating high school. I assume that you began to suspect something was wrong rather than doctors first. Um, so it actually started with, um, I was feeling a little bit crummy when I was 17. 17, mm -hmm. I got Epstein-Barr. Uh, basically kissing the seas. And I got pretty ill for a couple of weeks. And after that, after I got better, I got back to school. And uh, it was leading up to the actual, actual last couple of weeks in school with proms and uh, graduation ceremonies and things like that. And I was in constant pain. There was something that wasn't great. I was feeling sore. It was almost like I had a, a bruise 
right under my rib cage. That was the feeling. But I kind of ignored it because I thought I'll be out of school. I'm going to join the Navy. Let's just ignore it for now. And then after, um, after graduation, I went on a band trip uh, with my marching band to Italy. And right just a week before, my mother looked at me and said, you look kind of yellow. And my eyeballs were really quite yellow. My skin looked tan, even though I hadn't mm. really spent any time in the sun. And we didn't really think any more of it. We thought that it's probably just a thing because there had been a lot of uh, late nights right before graduation. And when I got to Italy, I realized that I was in more pain and I was just, I had bright yellow eyeballs. It was, right. it was like um, the color of uh, sticky notes. That was really the color. And she said, we have to look into this. And a doctor that was on that trip said, you probably want to go and check it out. And I went to an Italian hospital <laughs> to take blood samples and they showed that something was way off. And I spent more or less the rest of that trip in a hotel room, and I couldn't really participate in the activities that the rest of my band was uh, doing. And then I got back after that trip, and they started going into what was going on. And that took weeks. When you got the diagnosis, how did, how did you feel at, at that point? Was it, was it a shock, or, by, or had you kind of narrowed down and thought... This is what's going on. I felt defeated. I felt absolutely defeated. I was 19, or I hadn't even turned 19. I was going to turn 19. And everything I'd planned for just went into nothing. My, to the Navy. To the Navy, yeah. I had excellent test scores. I was, I was um, picked out for special service in the Navy, and they basically told me that, no, we don't want you. So my whole future just went out the window and I had to start coming up with something that I could in fact do. So, and this really sad story is I think when you get a condition, in many cases, you go through all the stages of grief. You truly do. And for me, I spent a lot of time after that in more or less a haste that I don't really remember because I felt like I wasn't normal anymore. I wasn't the way I was supposed to be. And it was hard telling people that I couldn't potentially do the sort of things that they did. So it, it was a shock. It definitely was a shock. And I felt beat down. Did you know what to ask at that point? Because getting a diagnosis like that of something that's rare, look, I, I don't know what the stats are. Um, it's um, in the Scandinavian countries. then. But, in the Scandinavian so. countries at that point, it was uh, one in 75,000. Yeah, okay. Because uh, I think, I think it, there's about 10,000 people in the UK. Mm hmm. So it's a little more common in Scandinavian countries. Autoimmune disease overall is, is more common in the Scandinavian countries. Uh, but one in 75,000, something like that, at that point. And also immune hepatitis in particular, though, is, I mean, you get, it, you get a diagnosis like mm -hmm. that. And it, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm no medical professional. I'm kind of sitting there 
looking to the doctor to know what to ask and therefore kind of second guessing and not being at all sure the, the, i think the problem sometimes is that if if you're from a more rural area like i'm from they don't really know and they always ask to come back with answers but at that point my question was really can it be fixed and how long is it going to take to get fixed and when they shrug their shoulders and say we don't know we'll just have to see that is that's kind of heavy that's a that's a heavy burden to carry that you don't know and we'll just have to see and were, were they able were they able to give you a prognosis it was literally, literally we we shrugging shoulders they, and we, we they, have to they come back told to me that if if my um if my blood works looks good in a year that's good but that's it and um they couldn't give me any sort of prognosis they said that you should expect that you're not going to be able to do a lot of things that other people can you should expect to be on a liver transplant list and you should expect that you're probably not going to make it far beyond 30 without a transplant. And my average life expectancy would be about 50 years. Because one of the big differences between you and I is that I'm type 2. And I would presume that you're type 1. See, I don't even know. Yeah, there's there's two types. So type 1 is uh, for... Is something that can happen in any at any age. Type one happens in children and teens, and I think it's ninety six percent women in type, the type two group, and they tend to have a far worse outcome than type one. Hmm. So that's why they said that they weren't really sure what I could expect but i should try to live kind of normally and being 19 and processing it is not an easy feat so you you, you referred to the fact that you were looking to go to the navy mm-hmm. and you mentioned tests and you kind of mentioned not being able to do the things that you wanted to do and you were in a marching band how active were you i mean was sport a part of your life before this oh oh yeah i i exercise more or less every day uh, I did Taekwondo, right? Um, but I couldn't do that because bleeding and bruising didn't work out. Uh, I ran a couple of times a week. I uh, strength trained a couple of times a week. I danced four times uh, a week in school. So I think I had one day off where I didn't do at least one thing. And most days I did two or three different physical activities. So I was extremely active before I got my diagnosis. And I assume from the way that you're talking and what they're describing there, that you thought your diagnosis would, would stop you doing those things. Yeah. And, and did it for a while? Oh, it, it, it absolutely did. <clears throat> when, when I realized that things are not going to be as I planned, things are not going to pan out in a way that I expected, I more or less threw my hands up in the air and said, fine, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to do 
anything. I'm not going to move ever again. I'm not going to be able to exercise ever again. And I more or less gave up for three, four years before I started getting active again. I never stopped playing in a marching band. That was one of the few things that I never gave up. But uh, everything else, I gave up. So, look, I mean, today you got a personal best on a 5K time. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. Thank you. And you said it took you three or four years to find that motivation again. What What was it then three or four years later that gave um, you that push? I actually, uh, when I graduated from university, I got a job for which I was not qualified at all. Uh, I got to teach PE. I am very much not a PE teacher. I... I'm honestly, I've, I've honestly never been able to run very fast. I'm, I'm very enthusiastic, but I don't run fast. I'm one of those kids that in, in middle school, when you ran 100 meters, the other one would have, other ones would have come out of the shower before I crossed the finish line. Uh, but I got a job as a PE teacher, and I realized that I probably need to be able to do some of the things that I'm supposed to teach. So I started exercising and I kind of caught the bug again and realized that I feel better, especially mentally when I exercise. And I took up especially lifting weights because that was one of those things that I was told was good for me and wouldn't necessarily put too much pressure on my circulatory system and so on. So I mm-hmm. went with that and I... I liked it. And then a couple of years later, I um, was picked up for a job in Belgium. And someone set up a challenge for the people at work. And they looked at me and said, well, you look fit. So we're going to put you on the half marathon list. Okay. Half marathon. Fine. I'll do that. And I'd never run any sort of distance like that. But I decided that, okay, I'm going to run a half marathon, and I started training, and I did. And that's kind of where I got the bug, and I wanted to continue to run. So, I mean, what you've just said there does does pose an interesting question around all of this. Looking at you now, Mm -hmm. you are not yellow. You're not the color of a post-it note. To look at you, you don't look unusual in in any way. So how... How, how do you deal with that? You know, when people look at you and they don't see anything unusual, do they find it difficult to accept that you have a chronic condition? They do. They do. Um, very often, I think that having a chronic condition that isn't obvious <clears throat> makes it harder for people to understand. And especially if you stay active, they have an even harder time to understand that there's something that isn't quite right because they want to hear someone wheezing or they want to hear see something that is different about you. But looking completely normal and trying to explain that my autoimmune system is working against itself is hard for people to understand. And I, I have to sometimes tell people uh, it's not a great thing when you're dating 
that you have to tell someone if you're starting to get serious with someone, tell them that, hey, by the way, before you start looking at, you know, the long term thing, just know that I have a short life expectancy. It's 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 not it's not a great pickup line, uh, but it's something that I sort of have have had to deal with. And um, it's hard to convey to people that some days are better, some days are worse. And it's not me being rude. It's not me being grumpy. It's just that some days I'm a little more tired. Some days everything feels fine. Now, you were, you were on steroids. Let, let me mm-hmm. make sure I've got this right. You are off steroids now. Yes, I've been on steroids for 16 years, and I came off in June. Why do you think you've come off steroids now? Uh, partly, I think, um, because my blood work has re- looked really good, and they tried to take me off. And partly because of the coronavirus giving me the opportunity to focus more on taking care of myself. Right. And one of the big things that they have seen in studies is that the more active you are, especially with liver disease or liver conditions overall, is that you can hold back the progression of cirrhosis. It's uh, because because it's a because the liver you know becomes a fatty liver. The more you can make sure that you don't gain weight, that you stay at an act, stay active and stay at a fairly low body weight, the less cirrhosis, uh, the less the cirrhosis progresses. So I got that opportunity when we had to start quarantining to actually start taking care of myself. Full up. Was there any was there any tension though in the conversations with your family? Because you mentioned there, you know, weight weightlifting was good, and weightlifting mm-hmm. for anyone who's not familiar, steroids can weaken your 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 bones. So I've I've started lifting more than I did because it strengthens your bones. Mm-hmm. However, I, I've I've I love running, and yeah. I'm also aware that it does increase inflammation and it does put extra strain on your body. Mm-hmm. And my wife was quite keen when I got my diagnosis. One of the things the doctor turned around to me and said is, you're not planning on doing an Ironman, are you? And I'm like, well, I'm not, I hadn't really thought about it, but I am planning on doing a marathon. Mm-hmm. It's like, is that okay? And we didn't really know how much was too much. And that led to a few conversations mm-hmm. of, well, maybe you should run a little bit less. And it's like, well, I don't, I don't really want to run a little bit less. Have you had a similar dynamic? And, and listening to you there talking about how much looking after yourself has helped during quarantine, mm-hmm. it'd be interesting. Um. There has been tense conversations, especially with my mom. Uh, it's a, I think it's a little bit something that all moms do. They they get a little worried, and they're telling you that don't work too much and don't do too much and don't bite off more than you can chew. Um, and that conversation has been happening a lot during the last kind of fifteen years. And she was really worried when I started running. Um, started running and training for the half marathon, she was very concerned that I would get worse, that I wouldn't listen to my body, I wouldn't take the rest I needed, that I wouldn't eat properly. Um, 
And that's something that I sometimes really had to fight her for. Uh, the same thing for my husband. He was, he's tried to push me to take it slow and not do too much at once. And I'm a little stubborn sometimes. So I try to listen, but sometimes my stubbornness takes over and I do it anyways. And I think that is one of the more positive things with um, having or getting a diagnosis is that at some point, I think for me around 25, 26, I started realizing that, hey, this is the time I have. I better use it best I can. I better take care of myself and I better have fun as long as I possibly can. And I think that's one of the things that made me take the leap and move to Belgium hmm. and decide that you can do really weird things. You can do unexpected things and that the only one stopping me is really myself. And one day, Something is going to stop me, and that's okay. But until then, I think I should use the time I have to have fun and do new things that I've never tried before. Do you think that's why sport is so core to that element of understanding and managing your condition? You know, you, you did oh, a half marathon. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. And I think that, that the big part of that is that every day that you go out there, like yesterday, it was terrible weather. It was raining from below, basically. But you're still going out there and you're challenging yourself to not choose the easy way out and stay in and wait for the rain to get better, but actually using the time you have and doing it and being more accepting of that it may not be great. It may be a bad day. I may not run that fast. It may hurt somewhere or it may be cold. It may be slippery, but that's okay because you pushed yourself to do it and you gave your body that chance to try, try that as well. It's, I think the, the constant challenge that there's always something that you could do is is kind of titillizing in a way. I mean, right now there are no races, nothing. I work in a mask every day. Uh, the the Army uh, 10 miler is a big event here in Washington, DC, not happening. Uh, the marathon that was supposed to be in November, not happening. Um, we're hoping, keeping fingers crossed, that the 10-miler around, um, around the spring festival is going to happen, but we don't know. So I'm, I'm hoping that that's going to happen, and I'm really looking forward to actually doing a 10-miler. Because it's not as much as a half marathon, but it's still a little bit of a challenge. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Have you uh, done any virtual challenges out of interest? <laughs> I, I I may do one or two of them, but I don't know. I, I'm looking at maybe doing uh, five, a couple of 5K challenges. Right. And there are some that, that give you for really nice gear. So I may, I may. Right. <laughs> Look, if you could go back to that moment where you got that diagnosis and mm -hmm. you threw your hands up in the air 
looking back nearly two decades on, what do you? What's the one thing that you could tell yourself if you could tell yourself something? I think one of the most important things that I would want to tell the 19-year-old who just gave up is that it's going to be okay. You're going to have to be patient. You're going to have to learn that your life is a little bit different than other people's lives and that I have to put myself front and center physically first. I, I think that's one of the most important things because when I got ill, I just, I gave up. I didn't want to, I didn't want to care about the fact that I was ill. I went through, as I said, the stages of, of grief and denial. I was in a denial for a long time, for a very long time, where I would not admit that there was something different about me and tell myself that I can do most things. I can't do all things, but I can do most things. I can't be probably not ever become the best at a lot of things, but that's okay. I can still try. And that's more than anyone could ever ask. We did a, a pre-chat, obviously, prior to this recording, where you described some pretty kind of amazing moments. You said your 30th birthday where your, mm -hmm. where your mum cried, reaching 30, not having had a transplant, yeah. coming off the UNOS list. Mm -hmm. Obviously, coming off steroids after all this time is amazing. But if you had to pick one moment, I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Obviously, I, some of those things are just amazing. So I, I mentioned them just in case you don't mention mm -hmm. them. But what do you think your greatest achievement has been, either sporting or just generally since you've had that diagnosis? I want to say that the half marathon was a great victory for me uh, because I was never very, I was never good at running. I wasn't good at running the way other people were. So being able to step out on a cold October morning and holding my little medal and saying that I've run through Brussels and I, I was able to do it, that mattered a lot. But also when I came to the decision that I don't have time to be afraid of things and avoid things that are either uncomfortable or that people think is people would think are different. The sort of things that people think, are you really gonna do that? What's stopping me? Later on, it may stop me. Now it does not. So why don't we do it now? I think that coming to the conclusion, and that was really around my 30th birthday, mm -hmm. deciding that I can do what I want. And if life stops me, that's okay. But I can at least try. Because I, that was really a turning point where I started getting more positive about the opportunity that I had rather than the the thing stopping me. Lavisa, I really appreciate your time. Um, I know it's not the easiest thing necessarily to always talk about, so uh, it, it's great that you've been able to kind of share your experiences and, and how mm -hmm. sport has helped you, but more more generally just what your thoughts are. have been over the last 
as I say, almost two decades of dealing with this condition. So yeah. um, really, really do appreciate your time, especially at the end of a day where you've had to wear a mask and That's okay. the kids have not, not understood everything. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, it's a work in progress like we all are. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Look, we'll keep in touch and uh, enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank you so much. The same to you and thank you so much for having me. Now that we're officially in the run into Christmas, why not think about giving a gift with a story behind it? Alive and Kicking are using football as a force for good and helping to support mental health education across Africa. You can do the same by giving someone a football from aliveandkicking.org forward slash shop. Now the footballs come in retro 90s kit designs. So go have a look and give a unique gift that will help make a huge difference to more than just the person who receives it this Christmas. Right, following the interview, I'm pleased that I'm going to be joined by two experts for the show. And I say that because I am neither a fitness nor a health expert, and there'll be stuff in all of the interviews throughout this first series that I will just miss because of that. So I'm delighted that Natalie Turner and Marla Morkin are going to be joining us as a fitness and health expert, uh, respectively. Natalie, you're a, a fire fighter for the fire service. You're British military health and uh, expert and PT. Uh, Marla, you are Forbes 30 under 30. You're a doctor and you are opening what the, the UK's first digital health clinic. Is that right? Well, it's, it's for chronic pain. So it's going to be pain, the first, yeah, so it's going to be the first, uh, what we think is the first CQC registered fully online clinic for people living with chronic pain, which is super exciting because it's everything we're talking about here right giving the power back to people in their own homes to improve their 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 lives fundamentally perfectly yeah perfectly aligned to what we're talking about throughout this um look on the first on the first front um i suppose just a fitness point that that stood out to me and and natalie I'd, i'd be keen to see what kind of jumped out to you but i was just intrigued that it took her till she was la visa till she was 25 to 26 before she realized that she needed to take better care of herself. And that that period of kind of six years, seven years from the age of 19 to be more accepting and, and to realize that she could basically push herself and push her body. Um, do, do you come across people who have chronic health um, conditions that often in the, in the work that you do? When I teach my classes, I do have people that struggle with different conditions. Um, so I've got uh, I've got somebody with chondomalacia, which is a um, joint issue in the knees, uh, back problems. Um, yeah, just like niggles here and there. Uh, and I have to. It's my job to you know provide alternate exercises and you know give a better option for them that's less impact. Uh, especially if they're suffering with like an inflamed muscle or joint um, and whilst making the class more fun as well. I mean, for Lavisa, like when she was saying, um, you know, it took her a few years to actually start getting into like weight training and, and uh, getting into fitness. I I can't even imagine what she must've been feeling then, but you know, I thought it was quite inspiring that um, eventually it was her stubbornness that sort of brought her through it all. You know, it was that that made her think, you know what, sod it. I'm going to live my best possible life. And if I hurt myself in the process, then oh, well, you know, I'm not going to let life stop me. I'm going to keep I'm going to keep going. Um, so I think she was she was really inspiring to listen to. Um, 
but yeah, to, to take that long to sort of kickstart and do something, like I say, I couldn't, I can't really even put myself in her position. Who knows? It might've taken me double the time, but I think in, you know, I think the moral of the story is that she got there in the end and, and look at where she's ended up. I think, I think one of the interesting things listening to her is that if I think about my brother-in-law, he's just started running and he keeps saying to me, do you enjoy running? And the honest truth is half the time I don't enjoy running. <laughs> I, I enjoy the benefits of running um, and I enjoy the end of it, but I don't really enjoy it itself. And, and, and Lavisa talks about the fact that there's those, you know, a great many occasions where, where it's not all that enjoyable and it's a bit rubbish, but you kind of get out there and give your body the chance, right? Is that an important message for people when it comes to fitness, that actually a lot of the time it's not actually that fun? I think um, I actually love that message that she put out. Like, it, whether you have a chronic illness or not, as a human being, we have our good days and we have our bad days. And that was the message that she was trying to portray, that, do you know what, even if, and for her, her bad days will be much, much worse than a person who isn't struggling with any sort of condition. But she's still you know, the message she was saying was, you've still got to get out there. You've still got to do it. You know, if you want to look a certain way, you want to be strong, fast, you want to, you know, you want to extend your life. You do need to put the effort in on the bad days because it's the bad days that count over the good days. Everyone can have a wicked training session on a good day, but on a bad day, that's where the real strength comes into play. And I think she got that message across perfectly. Um, I suppose one of the other things that stood out to me, and look, I don't want to kind of monopolize this at all because you two are the experts, um, but in the pandemic, right, there's lots of chatter about the fact that people aren't going to the doctors to get things checked out. I, um, I was kind of shocked listening to it that it took her to be yellow before they really started to worry about stuff. And even then they went, well, it's probably, you're probably having just a few late nights through graduation. I've worked hard. I've never gone yellow. <laughs> Yeah, when she said that, do you know what? I, I feel, I don't know about you, Marla, but throughout lockdown, I've had a few niggly bits here and there and I'm thinking I should probably go to the doctors, but the amount of effort it is taking just to get an appointment at the moment, I can see why somebody would just push it to one side. Like Lavisa said, on several occasions, she had things come up, you know, where her skin was looking more tanned, her eyes were going yellow, you know, she was just looking a bit ill in general. And even her mum was like, you know, sort of almost brushing it under the carpet, like, no, you'll be okay. It's it's all good. But I don't think it was, um, she wasn't saying that because she didn't care. I think it was a matter of, it's going to be a really, you know, it's going to be a massive difficulty to even get seen because of the situation that our country's in, well, the whole world is in at the moment. Um, have you guys suffered with anything like that throughout this period where you've thought, yeah, there's definitely something wrong, but I'm going to pretend it doesn't exist because it's just far easier not to book an appointment right now. Yeah, I suppose human nature as well, isn't it? It's human nature for us to just kind of hope for the best and to kind of just crack on. And that is, I know, I, I mean, like saying it as well, is like very much a British thing to do, isn't it? <laughs> we have listeners from everywhere, but it is just carry on, keep calm and carry on. So I think that, the mentality to take responsibility for your own health and not wait for someone to come and check in on you is something that I find is needs to be taught because we don't encourage people fundamentally to go and seek it. We we treat it like a bothersome thing. We tell everyone on a daily basis how stretched our healthcare system is. We shouldn't be doing it because we're, we're frightening people away from burdening a system when they should be coming in. Out of interest, the... Um... 
she talks about it almost being like a grieving process. And I suppose when when you go through grief, you kind of look for maybe to to assign blame. And I stuck out on Twitter kind of, you know, what questions do you wish you could ask a doctor? And uh, I got one reply saying, you know, what what's the trigger? What's the trigger for a, for a chronic health condition? And Lavisa talked about, you know, can this be fixed? How long, you know, is it is is it going to be before I get back to normal? And I suppose there's that. I suppose it's all wrapped into this idea of how can I assign blame and, and figure out what the cause is and, and what what the next steps are. And yet, doctors with the best will in the world sometimes don't understand these conditions because they're rare. Um, how how do you deal with that when someone is obviously you're not just treating a physical complaint, but obviously treating someone when they're mentally quite low and fragile? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you said it all there. <laughs> it's 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 difficult, and I tell you something because that. So I I don't work clinically anymore, but when I did work clinically, um, and when I was going through med school, it's very difficult to train someone on how to have those conversations because until you're in the room with that particular patient and they've got particular worries. It's never what you think, right? So, you know, when you're admitting someone into hospital for the first time, a lot of the time they're worried about like their dogs or like, you know, who's going to pick their kids up from school. They're not not even worried about their kids. They don't even, this doesn't even cross their minds why they're being admitted. It's the other things. And it's about making sure that you are asking the patient what it concerns you, what worries you and how can we tackle this together? Because, if, if it is, where did it come from? How can I live? Can I do sports? Can I carry on? Can I do a half marathon, right? If it's all of those things, then those should be the things that are tackled in the 20, 30-minute consultation, not stuff that the doctor thinks is important for the patient. And we need to be able to frame it in a way and give confidence to the patient to be able to ask the questions they want to know rather than being told information mm. they, like, that might be beneficial to them. Is there any, any other points that either of you made at all that you want to bring in? I mean, when I was just typing some notes down after I was listening to her interview, I just liked her attitude towards the whole thing. You know, I mentioned earlier about her stubbornness streak taking over, and she said um, something that was really prominent, I felt. She said, this is the time she has. She better use it the best she can, better take care of herself, and she better have fun as long as she possibly can because she, she might not be here for that much longer. And I, do you know what? I loved that. I thought that is how – that should be everybody's mantra, you know, like whether or not you're suffering with a condition. But I think when you do have a condition, you become more aware of these sort of things. And, you know, she said a lot about this throughout um, her interview – um, and she said about, you know, one day something is going to stop me, but until then I'm going to keep doing new things. I'm going to keep pushing my body to those limits until I physically can't do it anymore. And I love that. You know, I think if there's anything anybody should take away from this, it's that mentality. It's that positivity to do something. Like I said, even on your bad days, even on the worst days is not to wait for the rain to stop, but to challenge yourself and keep going through the storm so that's that's really what I pulled from it. But yeah, those are my thoughts. Well, I want to thank you both for joining us on this first episode. Um, obviously, we won't have much uh, audience interaction until maybe a few episodes into the show. Uh, but both Natalie and Marla are with me, certainly for the first season. So if you're listening, if you have a chronic condition, or maybe you're slightly worried and think that you should go speak to a doctor, or maybe you want to find out something different about how to train, uh, and you have specific needs, why not 
uh, get in touch. It's the Chronically Fit Show on Instagram, uh, or I'm just dsavage84 on Inst- on Twitter. I'll also share in the show notes the uh, social handles for for our experts. Uh, but do get in touch and ask questions because the whole point about this is that we want to make sure there's something practical as well for people rather than just the interviews. But uh, thanks for tuning in, Natalie Marla. Thanks for your time. Ooh.